Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. Today I'm talking to Dr. Derek Nottenbelt, Professor Emeritus of Equine Medicine at the University of Liverpool and a well-renowned specialist in equine oncology. Good afternoon, Derek, and thank you very much for agreeing to do this EVE podcast today. That's a pleasure. Let's get started by talking about your recent clinical commentary in equine veterinary education that is titled Cutaneous Squamous Cell Carcinoma, What is the Problem? And when I read that title, I thought, well, where would I even start? It appears that um, most of us, especially the equine vets who work on older horses, have to deal with these tumors quite often, but frequently it feels like we don't know enough to do the best job possible. And if you look at the literature, it becomes quite obvious why, because there isn't much research available. Um, like you mentioned in your paper, most of the information comes from um, case studies and, and very few um, papers really that look at larger numbers. So, um, my approach to this podcast today would be what can we learn, what should we know to do a better job at diagnosing and treating these lesions as well as educating horse owners about the risks of squamous cell carcinoma. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, perhaps we can start with a scenario of a veterinarian who is um, going on a farm call to see a horse with a skin mass. And when should this vet have squamous cell carcinoma high on the list of differentials? Yeah, this is a very interesting question because there are clearly locations and circumstances under which this condition does develop. And of course, characteristically, we know that the signalment of the horse is an important issue. So uh, while squamous cell carcinoma can occur in any age of horse and indeed in any breed of horse, the color does matter. And so for the most part, we try to find out and we would examine and see whether the lesion is confined to non-pigmented skin. Of course, this is not uh, a definitive rule, but it is for the most part a, a useful thing to do. Secondly, of course, we've got the age of the horse and we do know that squamous cell carcinoma does develop more often in certain locations in older horses, and we think of penile carcinoma, that's more commonly occurred in older horses, usually over 9 or 10 or 12 years of age, and more, more particularly, the more aggressive forms tend to occur in the very much younger horses. So my experience is that you know, horse, uh, horses that develop a squamous cell carcinoma, for example, of the penis, when they are 5 and 6 years of age, um, uh, are much more dangerous. The, the concept of it being uh, unheard of, for example, on a penis of a breeding stallion is not, is not true. It's less common, I agree, but there are probably reasons why that is the case. But for the most part, 
the appearance of these lesions and the location in respect of the pigment on the on the, of the skin or the or the portion and of course it's not only skin but it's mucous membranes as well so you can think of you know the conjunctiva the third eyelid you know the lateral limbus limbal conjunctiva the, you know the vulva of mares the penis of horses the yes. clitoris uh, so on and so forth so there are all sorts of sites where carcinoma does occur and quite commonly on the lips for example along the sides the margins of the lower lip and of course the argument is you know when you look at this you know say well why has it developed in this site so if a tumor is confined to that and has the characteristics of a potentially at least destructive or proliferative uh, tumor mass or they can be both of course simultaneously proliferative and destructive simultaneously so you land up with this you know really destructive uh, massive tissue that just destroys all the normal architecture and they can be very bad and of course the, the concept is that these things start small and they get bigger you know i always say that you know cancer tumors get bigger and the secondary effects become more widespread whereas inflammatory lesions tend to get smaller and heal and the secondary effects reduce so when that trend takes place you know then you've got a good history of uh, of when this condition first developed you can ask a history get a history you know has the animal been burned because we know that squamous cell carcinoma is very much more common on burned skin so if a horse has got a back burn or a leg burn from a fire genuine fire then then there's a tendency to carcinoma but then you know the it's not really always a sunshine related thing so whilst for example, Clydesdale horses in Australia get very, very high numbers of carcinomas on their third eyelids. They're all non-pigmented. But as a breed, they tend to be more liable to it. So in answer to your question, you know, you've got to go out there with an open mind and try to identify what the, what the condition is, how long it's been there, what the progression is. And often, oftentimes, unfortunately, what's been done before that may or may not have exacerbated or helped. And I never asked the owners whether, you know, I never criticized them for doing stupid things. I mean, they mostly do that. But at the same time, I never criticized that. I always asked, you know, did that help? And for the most part, because they're calling you out, it hasn't yes. helped. And, uh, and, that, and that's a good, a good argument of it. So uh, carcinoma is just one of the tumors that can occur on the skin. And in the words of Tony Stannard, if you know the cells that, that comprise an organ and structure, you know the primary tumors that can occur there. And, and so there are 12 cells that go to make up the skin. Uh, squamous cells are one of them, and basal cells are the associated one. And so both of those two are potential skin tumors. But of course, there are lots of differential diagnoses to go with the other 12. Yeah, but what you, what you uh, emphasize is um, really talking and getting a good history from the owner is important yeah. in understanding yeah. what's happening Absolutely. and how long it has actually going on, has been going on for. Um, one thing you mentioned um, just right now was the penile or prepucial squamous cell carcinomas that we mostly see in geldings. Um, why do you think it is that we, at least I feel um, that way, often see these cases when it is too late to give them a good prognosis? And yes. you know when you look at them, they have been going on for a very long time. Why does mm. that happen? 
Well, I think, again, it's a question of a blinkered approach to this disease and uh, to the concept of cancer in horses in general. But you know, for the most part, if, you, if, the, if an owner were to be very perceptive, um, then they should be able to detect some form of clinical sign beforehand. And one of the commonest, very early signs, in my experience, is just a propitial discharge. That's what they see first. Yeah. And sometimes with a speck or two of blood in it, if the thing is quite advanced already. In other words, if you get blood, you have to have destruction. You know, that's already destructive. So sometimes it's a brown discharge and sometimes it's smelly and it's pussy and stuff like this. And then, of course, people say, I'll get out my, you know, bowl of soapy water or I'll get my disinfectant out or I'll scrub him off and clean him up. But they fail to examine the, the cardinal places. You know, they fail to recognize that little leukoplakia, which is the earliest form of precarcinomatous dysplastic change in the in the skin of the penis itself yeah, and yeah. of course those areas where you can't see very well you know the propitial reflection you've yes. got to prolapse the whole thing out and get in there and then you have to look inside the urethral fossa you have to look inside the urethra itself and see if there's some areas here which are involved and of course people tend to think of it as being an infectious process and stuff like this but all this discharge and all the antibiotics and all the bacteria and so on that go in there drive both owners and vets um, regrettably towards here is a sheath infection and and of course if they were really critical and said, hang on a minute, how many horses actually get a sheath infection? Almost none, a primary sheath infection, almost none. It can happen when people are overzealous about hygiene and stuff like this, of course. But but for the most part, I, I, I know there are commercial places that produce broth to speed and get the flora and fauna back in the in the in the prepuce. The number of times when that actually indicates very low, because for the most part, if you just got an exudative tumor that's oozing serum uh, or plasma into into the into the sheath, of course it's going to be a culture medium for bacteria. Of course it is. And so I think they bias themselves we all bias ourselves towards, oh, look, there's a little bit of leukoplakia on there and, you know, one or two little ulcerated areas. It's a bad infection. I'll treat it as such. And But if course, you have a veterinarian who recognizes that <clears throat> as a problem, so looks at it and even does a biopsy, comes back as squamous dysplasia or squamous mm, papilloma, what yeah. do you tell them um, what to do with that lesion in that early yeah. stage? Yeah, I think the early stage is fortunately the stage at which you have a chance of total success. Um, because if you tackle them early enough and tackle them strongly enough with a focused approach to them, then they will commonly resolve. And of course, it might mean a multimodality treatment approach. In other words, you need the hygiene. Of course, you need that to get rid of the secondary bacterial infection. You need some form of uh, anti-neoplastic medication if they are a little bit more advanced but otherwise you know i if you can identify a few lesions that you can have a go at you can cryo them you can do whatever you can freeze limited areas of it whilst at the same time using a uh, a, a product usually five percent five fluorouracil yes. which we apply once a week over the area you can't ideally you want to apply it more often of course but it makes it 
really bad. But you, you have know, to go after them when you find uh, them that early. Don't just ab- monitor absolutely. them. No, yes. no, exactly right. I mean, you have to treat them and you have to you have to look at these animals and say, why is the horse like this? You know, what is what is it telling us about this discharge, about these little white leukoplakia areas and the little areas of erosion and ulceration on a pink penile, penile skin? You know, uh, you, you have to ask the question, why is it there? You know, is this telling us that there's an infection? No, it isn't. It's not the primary problem. It's, the infection is the secondary problem in the vast majority of cases of course there are yes. few um, but what do you um, also recommend what i thought was very interesting what you um, discussed in your paper in terms of diagnostics that you should complete when having a horse with a suspected squamous cell carcinoma and you could pick whatever location you want there to go into that a yeah. little further but you talk about endoscopy you make sure you check the lymph nodes and then yeah. biopsy it perhaps you can um, yeah. elaborate a little bit on yeah. that right the, the process the process of diagnosis involves two things really one what is the condition and you know and obviously biopsy is the is the the the, the gold standard. You, yes. you, I mean, every single pathologist is going to recognize all the stages when the thing is broken through the basement membrane, whether it's uh, it's in situ carcinoma, whether it's pre-carcinomatous dysplasia. Pathologists will recognize that. So, so firstly, you establish the diagnosis. And then because of the implication from the diagnosis, you have to say, what is the likely next component of this disease in other words what is going to influence the prognosis well it's going to influence the prognosis by the nature and the stage or the grade of tumor that you're dealing with how bad is the tumor and has it already done some mischief in other words has it spread so if you have a squamous cell carcinoma let's assume that you have a third eyelid that you look at it's had this little characteristic keratin based uh, ocular discharge is very often very tenacious little squiggly line on the lower along the lower eyelid and you prolapse the third eyelid and you see a little erosive or proliferative or gray colored area that's not pus by the way that's fibrin as a consequence of well differentiated cells producing fibrin of course most of the the squamous cells of the conjunctiva are not keratinizing you know it's just like the cornea is not keratinizing so you you have to say if they're producing keratin then that's not a well differentiated cell it's a poorly differentiated cell in these circumstances so on the penis of course you get the same appearance of that very sticky thing and when you peel that off you get little erosions and ulcers yes it looks as though you've got that little bit of fingers coming up toward you underneath it and those are all the proliferative areas of the epidermis that's where the squames are all behaving badly so having done all this now you've then got to say well what's the implication from this well if this is malignant What's going to happen? Well, two things. Firstly, it's going to be destructive locally. It's going to break through the basement membrane. It's going to destroy local tissue. It's going to destroy the skin. It's going to widen and become uh, a, a very destructive, very infected, very uh, ulcerated area of tissue. And so that's telling us something that it's the next step up, but it still may not have metastasized or drained into the local lymph node. And then you need to track where that local, the next local lymph node is. So for example, from the conjunctiva, the first 
station on the lower eyelid conjunctiva, um, the first stop is the diffuse tonsillar tissue on the floor of the guttural pouch. So now, of course, people often say, oh, look, you've got an eyelid tumor. Why on earth are you scoping the guttural pouch? Well, that's where you see the first sign, because if it gets to the parotid lymph node now, that's the second sign. And if it gets into the pharyngeal one, you can't see those anywhere unless you're inside, and you can't even palpate them, frankly, um, unless you're inside the guttural pouch. So if you look around, it's, oh my God, look at that. There's a proliferative lesion inside the guttural pouch, and there's the lymph node is up, and now I can see on the inside, the lateral compartment where the parotid saliva lymph node is, then we can see that's also enlarged. You say, oh, hang on a minute. You know, this is now... That's Beyond exactly this. what I think is, is so interesting and important to know where to look next to, to, yeah. to see how far um, it has potentially spread because yeah. local um, invasion or to the local lymph nodes is, is something we know is happening. You just need to know where to look. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. So when people are looking at, you know, when, when you see a squamous cell carcinoma on the penis of the horse, you know, we all think, oh, hang on, I can feel palpate the inguinal lymph nodes. Well, the, the inguinal lymph nodes, when the area is very infected and very inflamed, you know, they're going to be enlarged anyway. But the next lymph node back is the subiliac lymph node. So now you need to do a rectal examination. Yes. And sometimes when people say, this, so what the hell are you doing a rectal examination for? But actually, it's part of the the assessment of where the tumor has caught. Of course, uh, the definitive diagnosis, if you can ever find it, is to take a biopsy of the lymph node and see that you've got the same thing. So, you know, and but that's quite difficult because, you know, taking a biopsy of the subiliac lymph node of a horse, yes. not that easy. You do laparoscopically and you can do that, of course, but, but, but it's not an easy business. And so we have to build up diagnostic weight, if you will, you know, we're building up the, the evidence for saying this horse has a metastatic malignant tumor. So the pathologist has told us it's malignant, undifferentiated cells, you know, all and let's, destructive If you things. don't mind, let's talk about yeah. the histopathology report real yes, quick, because um, it's, it, it can be difficult for a practitioner or clinician um, who has biopsied a mass or even cut mm. one out, hopefully yeah. uh, completely, and then mm. they get the report back and look at it and it gives you diagnosis, but there's yeah. typically a lot more information in there that um, we might not understand. So what would mm. you tell the listeners to, to pay attention to when yeah. reading the histopathology report? Well, I think, I think the first thing to do is to try and identify, I, I go a lot on the extent of cell differentiation, the, the, the restriction to to uh, outside the basement membrane because as soon as a tumor breaks through the basement membrane then it's going to get a different kind of implication it's going to have you know it's going to have its own blood supply it's going to be self destructive and self proliferating and so of course under, under those circumstances the 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 genetic instability of the cell is just kept it magnified every time the cell cycle goes through it magnifies that and has another mutation and another mutation and gradually works its way toward that so the extent of cell differentiation the speed of the tumor is often very important and so if if the if the tumor is advancing very fast and you get a report of an undifferentiated carcinoma that is no longer in situ that's broken through the basement membrane and is, is locally invasive and sometimes invading blood vessels or 
or at least lymphatics. And then, and then as soon as you look at all that, you say, hang on, this is a really dangerous tumor. And sure enough, it is a dangerous tumor. But set against that, you know, some hideously dangerous tumors don't metastasize quickly to remote organs in the horse. You know, they, they, they tend to, you know, metastasis as a general rule in horses is very inefficient. It's extremely inefficient in every single tumor. You know, they're, they're, I mean, squamous cell carcinoma in the stomach, for example, is perhaps a little bit of a difference because it metastasizes transylomically and by local invasion straight through the diaphragm and chest. It can go everywhere, of course. But, but for the rest of them, it's an, an, an inefficient process, thank goodness, because otherwise they'd all die very quickly because a lot of the tumors we see are declared malignant by pathologists. And, and then, of course, you've just got to remember that, you know, they, the extent to which the tumors invading blood vessels and lymphatics, the, the rate of cell replication, the mitotic index, so if there's, you know, multiple cells per high power field, mitotic figures in per high power field, that would be very unusual uh, in any tish, normal tissue and indicates that it's, you know, bad news because it's growing faster than it should normally for squamous souls. And, uh, and then, of course, the pathologist declares whether you've done the margin. Now, of course, if you take a biopsy, you're not expecting a margin. But you, you say uh, that whenever you try to excise a tumor completely, you should yeah. always ask for evaluation, evaluation oh, yeah. of your surgical margins. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, to be honest, this, this drives me demented. This, this concept for our profession actually drives me mad. Because actually, if you remove a tumor and you feed it to the Jack Russell when you've done it, A, it doesn't look professional. B, you have no idea whether you have a margin or not. I mean, if, if people, and I speak from experience, you know that if you have a tumor removed and they say, sorry, you haven't got a margin, What do they do? Do they just throw their hands up in horror and say, well, you know, tough luck? No, they don't. They say, hang on a minute, I'm coming back, I'm going to take more. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they take more and they cut more wider. Because it's the last cell in every cancer that is the biggest issue of all. You know, getting rid of the first billion by cutting out the bulk of a tumor, you know, this so-called debulking process, you know, debulking is only a part of the treatment. You have to run yes. concurrent mm -hmm. treatment if you're just going to debulk it, if you're not expecting to have achieved a margin. You know, then you have to do something else. You can't just debulk it and leave it because it, it's well known. If you upset a tumor cell, I mean, I know it sounds a bit, you know, a bit naive to say if you upset the tumor cell, it becomes bad. Well, you know, it's a well-known fact, and we understand that from a pathological perspective, from an oncological perspective. We know that if tumors cells are left behind, they will almost always be more aggressive on the second recurrence. So, so in, in the end, it is, in my view, irresponsible. And I, I'm, I would even go further and say it's negligent to avoid submission of a sample that you remove, regardless of whether you think, oh, that's nothing, and I've got the third eyelid. I mean, you can excise the third eyelid by the 
inverted commas, brutal way of doing it by just pulling it out and putting a pair of scissors underneath and chopping it out. And then you, you know, chuck that in the bin or it goes in the, in the swab and it goes to the incinerator and everything's fine. But, you know, then six months later, the horse, you know, has got a little bit more tumor there and you think, oh, hell, this is coming back. And then you look in the guttural part, say, oh my God. You know, it's, I just think as a profession, we need to do what needs to be done. And it doesn't matter whether it costs the owner $50 extra. The fact is that the pathology is required for the case. And if you go to court to defend your decision not to send it in and you say, I didn't send it in because Mrs. Jones didn't want it, because she said she didn't want to pay the money for the histology, I would far rather take shortcuts on the surgery, but no shortcuts on the pathology. You can, so, and, and I think what you said there, the debulking, is a, is a very good um, point to start my, my follow-up question, because what you said is that we often, and I can think of many cases where that has happened to me, you remove it, you submit the sample for uh, histopathology, and they say you didn't get surgical margins. And quite yeah. often I'm surprised because I felt I got a decent amount of healthy tissue removed. Um, yeah. But that's where the importance of... Um, combined treatment methods comes into yeah. play. Yeah, and um, exactly. perhaps we can talk a little bit about that, yeah. what your experience and preference is when it comes to cutaneous squamous, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. Right, yeah, absolutely. Now, the good thing is that in squamous cell carcinoma, there are options for concurrent chemotherapy or supportive or adjunctive chemotherapy. And of course, there are lots of other things that you can do. Firstly, you can go back and take out more. Secondly, you can subject it to radiation. That's not available to many people. And so I, I'd rather stay away from that for the moment because it's a very special circumstance where you can find a, someone with a strontium plaque or with a, with a linear accelerator or iridium wires or HDR or LDR systems or whatever you like. But those are very unusual and don't apply in the real world, you know, that, that's not what we would do. Yes. That, then beyond that, you have to say, well, what else can be done? And for the vast majority of these things, there are several things that you can do. One is, of course, you can widen the surgical site by freezing the area. I don't think that does any useful purpose, because if you're going to do that, then you should have removed that tissue anyway. So I, I think it's just an added complication to the process. And if you are going to do that, you should have removed the tissue and then given it chemotherapy rather than cryotherapy because cryotherapy is non-discriminatory. You know, it, it doesn't discriminate between good cells and bad cells. It just kills everything. Mm -hmm. Just like a knife does. Just like a knife does. Scalpel, you cut it out, you put it in the bin, it's dead. You know, or hopefully you put it in the formula, and that's. Uh, but the tumor is now dead. So, but but what's left is the key to it. So, if you uh, find that you are suspicious of no margin, I think that immediately after the surgery, you need to do some concurrent chemotherapy. Now, there are several options for that. Uh, firstly, you can use one of the normal conventioning, conventional alkylating agents like carboplatin. I use carboplatin a lot. It's very appropriate for carcinomas of all descriptions. And, uh, and that works 
actually very well in a slow release form and that you just need to make the emulsion. There's a standard way of doing it. And the, the, if anyone wants that, you can approach me. That's fine. I can give you that information. But Alan Theon uh, it, it developed this, I suppose, originally, and, and it's become a very much a standard. And, yes. you know, mm-hmm. the, the mistake is that people don't make it properly and they get an unstable emulsion, which is a waste of time. Well, people you need often, to, get, to get the clients to come back to you or let you yeah. go back out there to do the follow-up treatments, which yeah. I think can also be a challenge for, for the veterinarian, right? Yeah, but you know, it's cancer treatment. And whenever this yes. happens, I always say to people, you know, when did you know of a case of a person who had cancer treatment where, the, where you said, uh, I'll tell you what, this is a one-off job, you know, we're just going to do that and you can go home and nothing happens. What happens to a human? Well, first they have their yes. piece chopped off, then they have some chemo, then there's some radiation, there's some chemo and some radiation, some chemo and radiation, and that goes on for five years. Five years, mind. Okay, mm-hmm. and then at the end of the five years, the oncologist usually says, you're clear of cancer, so you have a whale of a party uh, uh, with all your friends, you're now a cancer survivor, and then three months later, you're dead. You know, that's cancer for you. And and if you're going to treat cancer, you have to be determined to follow it through. So I think one of the mistakes that we make when we're dealing with clients in this position is that we give them the impression that this is a one-off process, you know, and we can inject some carboplatin or mitomycin C or 5-fluorouracil or something around it. We yes. can even put something on the surface like 5-fluorouracil or imiquimod or something on the surface of the tumor to try and help it a little bit, depending on the location, of course, and what you're going to do. And then, of course, then you say, well, you know, that's okay for now, but you just go away. But actually, the follow-up is always the key to success in oncology. It, it, you, you have to chase the tumor because tumors are no respecters of very clever veterinarians. They're no respecters of very clever human oncologists. They're no respecters of physiologists or pathologists. They are really devious and they will beat you in the end. They will suck you into it and they will make you ignore it until then suddenly bang and the horse has got a problem and you say, well, why didn't you follow it up? So, well, yeah, you know, I think the, the critical thing is what you said, having this conversation with the client before you actually get started yeah, with any treatment, absolutely. right? Because they absolutely. need to be all in or um, there all, won't all be out. a successful outcome. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think just chopping off part of a tumor on the penis of a horse and leaving the root in there is just so completely counterproductive. It's not a, it's not a welfare contribution. It's a nothing. It's just, it's, it's a nothing treatment. And they, you know, it should be, I'd say it shouldn't even be free. You know, we should pay for the privilege of doing it, not the other way around. So, you know, I think that if you can't do the job properly, then you shouldn't be doing it at all. And furthermore, you should be using people who are in a specialist facility who have experience of all this. And there's been, you know, some things for, for example, penile carcinoma, a very good PhD study. I forget who the guy was, but anyway, um, I know him very well, of course, but the name's gone right out of my head, uh, who did a fantastic PhD study at the University of Utrecht. And, and it was a very encompassing thing on penile carcinoma, and it was very good. And in that, he just emphasized the same thing. He says, you know, the, the prognosis depends upon early diagnosis, aggressive treatment that is maintained to, to, to delivery of completion. 
In other words, that you, you're going to go through those three stages to start off with. And uh, so when you're looking at the chemotherapy options, people often say, well, what about using intralesional mitomycin C or intralesional aqueous solutions of carboplatin or cisplatin or fluorouracil? Um, the aqueous solutions don't do anything. They're not helpful in my experience. If you inject something into the base of a tumor that's aqueous, within 15 seconds, there is no material there. It's gone. It's washed out and gone. Uh, so you have to have something that is, you know, of a more of a longer duration. That's why the cisplatin beads were great. The matrix cisplatin beads were great. We can't get them here. I don't think anymore. But uh, but uh, but we now use the the variety of different kinds of slow release. But of course, for a conjunctival tumor, for example, or a carcinoma in situ on the cornea or the lateral limbus of the heart or the third eyelid, you know, you need drops. So the circumstances and the chemotherapy needs to be adjusted to the circumstance. You can't really put ointment on a on a horse's carcinoma on its penis three times a day for six weeks. You know, it's not going to let you do that. But you can put drops in the eye five or ten times a day um, for two weeks. You see, and that yes. is giving you the added support. It's not definitive by any manner of means, because remember, this can be five years. Yes, the, the the last question I had about treatment, and I think Van den Top is the um, yeah, that's, a, that's right, yeah, absolutely. The researcher you were talking about, yeah, those were some uh, very interesting studies. Yeah, um, uh, you mentioned the COX two inhibitors, and you yeah. say that they might have a very good, um, they might be very helpful in the long term. Um, yeah. Would you always recommend um, administration or only if immunohistochemistry has shown that the tumor actually has COX-2 expression? Yeah, that's a very difficult question because, uh, you know, if you say, well, we, 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 we don't find the COX-2 expression, uh, but we're still going to do it, you know, people say, well, why are you selling it then if, you, <laughs> if it's yes. not going to do any good? But my experience is that it's not quite as simple as that. And for some reason or another, I mean, you know, there's several COX-2 uh, 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 drugs which are out mm -hmm. there, which are on the market. But my experience is that for some reason or another, Paroxicam does more than the others in this respect. So, so I have have justified it on the grounds that you know, even though there is no COX two expression in this particular tumor, I'm still going to use it, uh, and I find that it does seem to help and and it's adjunctive you know and i don't know whether this, it is simply dealing with a different uh, a group of tumor cells that might not be there or that those ones which come on afterwards may have more cox2 expression i don't know what the science behind it is and it's actually i suppose it's a bit of a disgrace that we don't really know but at the same time, um, my own experience of this is that I like to do it for a number of reasons. One is it sometimes helps. Secondly, of course, it gives the owner the concept of longevity of treatment mm -hmm. and the need to maintain impetus against the tumor, not by giving them a placebo, but by giving them something that has a contributing effect. 
it's not definitive. And I, I know there are some reports of, you know, of paroxicam being administered, you know, 80 milligrams per horse is a st- kind of standard dose that I use, just 80 milligrams per horse, never mind the size. Yeah. And that seems to do the job. And, uh, and, and I know there are some reports where people have said it's, it's worked incredibly well. You know, and and they've had the impression that, you know, there's been a significant advantage. Of course, you know, now we can establish the COX-2, you know, expression categorically. We can pick those out. And maybe it's it's a line for a fantastic PhD study, really, to go through this and and find out, you know, what proportion of these tumors are COX-2 expressive and, furthermore, what the outcome is with and without paroxicam. Yes. You see, so it's a, it's a long-term study. I, I don't think I've got enough years or enough brain cells <laughs> to do it anymore. Um, left oh, my, but that there my, is still, I mean, that's, that's a good um, summary or some, some part of it is, is well summarized in this statement is that there's a lot more research that we need to do and that we should do to, to really figure out how to best deal and get rid of squamous cell carcinomas in Absolutely. the horse. Um, yeah, and, and this was already it. We're, we're out of time. Oh, God. Um, okay. <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> no, for um, discussing that uh, mm. with me. And um, to all our listeners who want to learn more and read more about this topic, this, this article, the um, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, what is the problem by Dr. Nottenbelt, is going to be available for free for the next month on the um, equine veterinary education website well that was great thank you very much and um, i will sign off for the day thank you very much timo and uh, good luck to all the people who are going to look for carcinomas on their horses so find them and deal with them thank you very much indeed thank you Thank you for listening to this equine veterinary education podcast more on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash eve